I have a question for you. What do psychedelic drugs, Supreme Court decisions, emotions, and the Sermon on the Mount have in common? Sounds like the setup to a, a joke, right? <laughs> well, actually, it's more like, uh, how are they going to be linked together? Other than me wanting to talk about all four of those things at some point today, they really don't have much in common. And you'll have to tell me how well I connected the dots at the end of this thing. But uh, that's just a little teaser to get us in. We've been spending the last few months uh, working through the Sermon on the Mount. And we finished about three weeks, four weeks ago, I guess it has been now. And what we learned and what we were talking about there is that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' statement of radical deconstruction. He is trying to completely break down our focus as human beings. And we all have this from ancient times until now. A focus on outward things. This outward focus on law, on obedience, on accomplishment, on earning our position, on performance. All those things are the way the world works. And it's the way that we have been taught since our earliest days. We got the cookie if we performed well, right? We got mom and dad's approval if we didn't do anything wrong. And so these things are so wired into us and the world reinforces it. And unfortunately, the church has reinforced it as well, using fear to try to drive people into the arms of a loving God. And so all of that thinking is what Jesus is trying to help us to deconstruct, to try to deconstruct that dualistic thinking. Because as soon as you think in words, you're thinking dualistically. You're comparing this to that. Is it light? Is it dark? Is it right? Is it wrong? You know, all of these things that we break into pairs and opposing pairs, comparing, contrasting, that's how we survive. That's how the mind works. So as soon as we're thinking in words, we have entered a dualistic universe. What Jesus is trying to do is to get us to understand that there is a completely different way to approach life, unitively, but also wordlessly. The Sermon on the Mount is helping us to deconstruct everything we think we know about law, about righteousness, about daily acts of living, so that we can reconceive it in this new way. Because unless we can do that, then God's love, God's degreeless love, as we have named it, love that has no degree, love that cannot be measured, love that is absolutely perfect. If something can't be measured, we said, you know, it always looks the same. God's love always looks the same, no matter who it is showered upon. Those that we have dualistically deemed good or bad, doesn't matter to God's love. All of these paradoxes, all of these contradictions, seeming contradictions, are what Jesus is using in the Sermon on the Mount and his entire ministry to try to help us to break down that type of thinking. Because until we do, we cannot see perfect love. We can't even conceive that it could exist. And in fact, we will resist it because we think everything is supposed to be just. And perfect love is not just. It's just perfect. It will unbalance the scales of justice always in favor of the beloved. To be able to even think that it is virtuous, to give ourselves permission to go in such a direction, requires a complete realignment of our thinking, and that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Jesus, Jesus is driving us toward what we call our Ecclesiastes moment. Remember that one? where Solomon, at the end of his life, realizes that everything that he has accomplished, everything that he has amassed, everything that he has done, means nothing 
in the face of his oncoming death, that death levels us all. The rich, the poor, the wise, the fool. And so his epiphany that he wrote about was that everything is meaningless unless it is grounded in the presence, the connection, and the love of this moment, this moment right now. He said there's nothing better for a man or a woman, anybody to do, than just enjoy their food, right? Enjoy their work. Enjoy your spouse. Enjoy the things of the moment. Because truly, there is no meaning beyond this moment. This moment, this one we're having right now, is like a completely enclosed universe, perfect within itself. There is nothing that exists outside of it, nothing for us, nothing that we can know. And if we are thinking outside of this moment, this universe, then we're nowhere at all. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. This is what Solomon understood at the end of his life. What Jesus is trying to get us to do is to intentionally and consciously aid the deconstruction process along so we don't have to wait till the end of our lives to let old age and impending death finally bring that point home. This is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So what stands in the way of Jesus' way? Because Jesus' way is the way to this degreeless love, this way to the Father, the only way to the Father, this way of deconstruction, this way of descent before we can ascend on the other side. What stands in the way of all of this, this Ecclesiastes epiphany that Jesus is trying to get us to have so that we can experience perfect love? Well, quite simply, for us, as long as we're here breathing, it's our mind and our body. Those are the two things that are going to stand in the way of us being able to actually follow Jesus to this perfect love. So it's the mind. The mind is a storehouse of all of our egoic conceptions, our conceptions about ourselves, our conceptions about life, all that dualistic consciousness, all of our thoughts are stored in our mind. And our body is a storehouse for all of our memories, wordless memories, emotions, the trauma, the pain, everything that we have experienced in life and everything that we've been taught is stored there in that unconscious, stored in our actual physical bodies as pain, as immunodeficiencies. I mean, you name it. But these things are coming out somatically in our bodies. All that unconscious programming that was put in place as we were children. And the more chaotic our upbringing was, the more programming we've got that needs to be unprogrammed if we're going to get back down to ground zero. And so that's the whole point of contemplative practice. And here at The Effect, we stand on two pillars. One is understanding Jesus from a first century Hebrew point of view, because that changes the nature of his message. And once you get that, you realize Jesus was a mystic and a contemplative. And so contemplative practice for ourselves, not just reading about it or understanding it, but actually practicing it for ourselves, is what brings us into this experience that Jesus is all about. And so the point of contemplative practice, which if you're not familiar with that, includes meditation, centering prayer, mindfulness activities, anything that helps us to step away from the workings of our mind and experience a deeper self. The point of that is to step away, to break our identification with our egoic, dualistic mind. 
to see the unseen. Because as long as we're identified with that voice that talks to us in our heads, as long as we think that's who we are, then we have a certain rigid way of understanding life, relationship, love, all of those things. And reality can't break through. It just hits our filter, and whatever comes through the filter looks like what we already think we know. And so to break that down, to step away from that, to break our identification with it, to realize that there is a deeper self that doesn't think in words, that doesn't think dualistically, is the first part. The second part of it is to step away and to break our identification with our emotions. Just as important. So that we can choose what is loving, what love demands in a moment, what is healing for everyone who's going to be affected by our decisions. And not just go and have those knee-jerk reactions, stimulus response, trigger and we do this, trigger and we do that, without any thought in between. To be able to step away from our emotions and to break our identification with them, yes, this anger I'm feeling is of me, but it is not who I am. And I can choose differently if I can be aware in the moment. And contemplative practice is the building of the awareness that catches up to us in real time so that we can make those kinds of choices, so we can make those distinctions who we are as opposed to what our mind or our body may be doing and feeling, emoting at any given moment. Jesus' way is going to take us to the freedom from the limitations of the mind and the body while we're still using them. And that's the key and most important thing. We're still going to be using our minds. We have to. As long as we're drawing breath, we need our minds to be able to do the things that our family, society, and love demands. We have to be able to think dualistically, to be able to make plans. But we need to know that the plans are not us, and we have to be able to feel. Emotions are part of human experience, an important part. But we need to know that the emotions aren't us. So while we're still using mind and body, Jesus is trying to free us from the limitations of mind and body. And we've talked about this dualistic mind a lot in here, and just recently. And I don't know if that's too hard for us to get a, a grasp on, at least conceptually, to understand, okay, yeah, I know how my mind works. I know how it leads me around by the nose all day long. I know that I need to break my connection with that. But I'm thinking, in some of you at least, there should be some pushback on this emotion stuff. Right? Aren't our emotions really important? Aren't, don't our emotions ground us, make us real? make us authentic. That's the popular uh, consensus in our society today. Emotions ground us. They make us real. They make us authentic. They make us compassionate, empathetic. They make us loving. And our society is kind of built on feeling now, much more than thinking. Our contemplative society, con con our conscious, huh, I can't come up with the right C word here. Our current society. How about that? Just make it simple. Forget all those syllables. The one we're experiencing right now. Much more feeling-based, you know, than, than thinking-based. So, the interesting thing is, is that the ancients who wrote our scripture, our, spir our own spiritual tradition in Christianity, sees it very differently. 
And it's been interesting that how in the last few weeks, uh, Richard Rohr in his daily meditations, I don't know how many of you get those, but it's, it's worth uh, signing up. It's free. Uh, have been in sync with where we've been. And it was in sync again this week, amazingly so. And so I want to read a couple of paragraphs from some of the uh, entries. You know, it was a daily entry each week. And see if that can lock in what it is that we're up against with our emotions and how we need to realign our thinking about our emotions if we're really going to be able to get on Jesus' way, make any headway. Because as long as we're resisting the notion at all that we should be detaching from emotions, then we're not going to do it, of course. But this comes from uh, Cynthia Bourgeau. She writes, In the psychological climate of our own times, our emotions are almost always considered to be virtually identical with our personal authenticity. And the more freely they flow, the more we are seen to be honest and in touch. A person who gravitates to a mental mode of operation is criticized for being in his head. When feeling dominates, we proclaim with approval that such a person is in his heart. But in the wisdom tradition, this would be a serious misuse of the term heart. Far from revealing the heart, wisdom teaches that the emotions are in fact the primary culprits that obscure and confuse it. The real mark of personal authenticity is not how intensely we can express our feelings, but how honestly we can look at where they're coming from and spot the elements of clinging, manipulation, and personal agendas that make up so much of what we experience as our emotional life. In the teachings of the Christian desert fathers and mothers, these intense feelings arising out of personal issues were known as the passions. And most of the desert spiritual training had to do with learning to spot these landmines and get free of them before they did serious psychic damage. In contrast to our contemporary usage, which tends to see passion as a good thing, indicating that one is fully alive and engaged, the desert tradition saw passion as a diminishment of being. It meant falling into passivity, into a state of being acted upon, which is what the Latin passio actually means, rather than a clear and conscious engagement. How many times have you heard me say, our goal should be to become completely unoffendable in here? That should be our goal. That was the goal of the ancients, become completely unoffendable, become unperturbed by things that normally just yank your chain and raise your blood pressure. One of the stories was, young monk who wanted to uh, get closer to God is sent out to the graveyard to insult the dead. And when he comes back, did you go to the graveyard? Yeah. Did you insult the dead? Yeah. So after that time of yelling at headstones, did they respond to you? Well, no. Okay, now I want you to go back and praise the dead. And he does it and comes back. Did you do it? Yeah. Did they respond to you? No. When you can respond to the insults and praises of men the way the dead do, then you're coming closer to God. See, this is the teaching of the ancients and the desert fathers and mothers, that we were supposed to become unoffendable. Now you say, okay, well, that's just about negative emotion. What about positive emotions? Aren't positive emotions a good thing, right? Well, the ancients called the positive emotions consolations. And you can tell by the term, you know, it's not exactly a compliment, right? 
There was the understanding that at the beginning of a faith walk, that a person needed a honeymoon period, needed to feel God deeply, needed those consolations, needed that emotion, that, that, that passion, to be able to get over and get through the difficult realigning of their thinking and, and, and just the daily routines of life. But it was a mark of immaturity. And to stay in those consolations was something that was punishable. <laughs> There's another great story about a young monk who was so passionate about his worship that he would literally levitate above his brothers in the, in the monastery. And finally the abbot looks at him and says, you, get down, join your brothers and grow up. <laughs> the mark of maturity was when we moved from the consolations to what are called the desolations. John of the Cross, a medieval Spanish mystic, calls it the dark night of the soul. You may have heard that before, but just used colloquially, not really understanding what it means. He talked about his faith becoming so pure that it became a dark ray of faith that he couldn't see anymore. Like the safety net was pulled, and he was just there. If you look at one of the handwritten manuscripts, he writes nada in Spanish, which means nothing, right? Nada. Nada, 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 nada. He gets to the end of the, and then he goes, starts down the margin. Nada, 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 nada. You know, it, that was the experience. But it's not like it was God leaving. It was that this was the experience. Once you get through the emotions and the passions and you get out to the deep ocean, get out to that pelagic experience, right? Deep ocean. And it changes. That's where everything changes. To the ancients, we must detach from our emotions, learn to master them in the sense that we would call regulating them. It's not that we're not going to feel them, and it's not that we shouldn't feel them. They're still going to be important to us. But we become free of the stimulus and response pattern. We become free from just reacting to our emotions or making choices based on emotions rather than being able to still be present and to still make a choice that is going to benefit everyone who is affected by our choices. And yet, as I said, our emotions are absolutely necessary. They must be felt. Emotions have to be felt. If you're stuffing emotions, if you're avoiding them, they're only going to grow toxic down there, and they're going to come back up in some other way. We need to feel the emotions. They're windows into our unconscious. They are showing us something really important. The negative emotions are like warning lights on your dashboard. They're telling you that something under the hood is wrong and you better pay attention to it or it's going to strand you someplace. Our emotions are telling us when there's something going on that we're not even aware of down there and we need to take a look. And the positive emotions are our human response to connection, to oneness. Connection is everything. We're here to connect and it feels a certain way to be in connection and that's a beautiful thing. But even as we feel our emotions, we still must recognize that they are physical. They're somatic. Their body, the body's reactions to certain stimulus. And it may not even be an external stimulus. It's just a learned reaction that is stored way down in our unconscious that's triggered by something. And all of the emotion comes back. Most importantly, we need to recognize that they are not us. These emotions are not who we are. And we need to build our awareness and let it catch up to us in real time so that as we're being triggered, as we're feeling the emotion, 
We don't just flow down the river. The train doesn't just leave the station and we're on it. But we can actually stop, take a breath, see what's going on, and choose the proper response that love would demand in this particular situation. And as we do that, we're changing the actual wiring of our brains. Every choice is taking us further along down that road. So we need to be able to regain our presence so that what we choose will leave people better than we found them. And that's the way of love that Jesus teaches. If you aren't leaving people better than you found them, then you won't be known by your love, which means, Jesus says, you're not my follower. It's all about love. We can't do the kind of love. We can't let flow the kind of love Jesus is talking about if we are slaves to thoughts and emotions. We need to be able to break free so that we can see how to love. And that takes some doing, right? How does Rohr put it? He says, Alcoholics Anonymous founder Bill Wilson viewed emotional sobriety, there's another term for it, emotional sobriety, as where the 12 steps should finally lead. The goal is not simply to stop drinking, but to become a spiritually awakened person who has found some degree of detachment from their own emotional, narcissistic responses. How is it that all of us get so easily hooked? so easily snagged by often temporary or even irrational things. Let me try to describe the process. The word emotion, from Latin emovere, means a movement. It's a body-based reaction in the moment that snags me immediately and urgently and feels like me. Some people say we should call emotions narcissistic reactions. How's that change your view of them? narcissistic reactions, and we have to recognize that they largely are, since the body carries all our shame, our childhood conditioning and memories, our guilt and our previous hurts. The addictive patterns of our emotions can be very hard to unhook. Emotions feel like truth, but they're not necessarily. That doesn't mean emotions should be ignored. They must be felt. Their honest message must be heard. Only then can we release ourselves from their fascination over us. They are necessary weather vanes to help us read situations quickly and perhaps in depth. But they are also learned and practiced neural responses, often ego-based, which have little to do with truth and much more to do with the storylines we have learned and created. The ego loves to hold on to such emotions to justify itself, defend itself, and assert its power. There is nothing like an angry person to control an entire conversation. True? Have you ever worked retail? Marion comes home every night and tells me about the people who cannot master their emotions or regulate them in any way, shape, or form. They're all in her line. There must be a sign over her register, emotionally unregulated only, because she gets them all. But when she tells me these stories, it's like absolutely amazing that someone can react like this because they didn't have the color plant they wanted, you know, or it wasn't this or it wasn't that. The smallest things triggering these people into emotional outbursts and fury sometimes. It's absolutely amazing. That's what un emotionally unregulated people look like 
Now, can we blame them? Can we tell them they're horrible people? You know what? Jesus, Marion's going, yeah. (laughs) I love that. Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What crowd was acting more emotionally unregulated than those who were spitting at him and jeering at him? and gleefully watching his gruesome execution. And yet he knows and he realizes they don't know what they're doing because they are not free from their emotions. In their minds and hearts, they were justified. They were doing the righteous thing. So many of us feel that we're doing the righteous thing. We don't even see, like Mr. Magoo going through. Now the younger people aren't going to know who I'm talking about anymore. just dated myself once again, going through life, leaving this havoc behind us and completely oblivious as we go. That's an emotionally unregulated person. That's what's going on. It's amazing how that actually happens. When we're talking about following this radical deconstruction of Jesus' way, The first step has to be to realign our thinking because if we're still making virtues out of our deficiencies and our limitations, there's no way our stinking thinking, as we sometimes call it, is going to get in the way and keep us from being able to do what Jesus is trying to get us to do because Jesus' way will challenge every single thing you think you know. Everything. What do they say in the program? You only have to change one thing. Everything, right? everything. Jesus will challenge everything we think we know and turn it on its head. Absolutely turn it 180 degrees. Always in trying to get us to even give ourselves the permission to look in the direction that he's headed because we won't do that until we can finally see another there out there. We won't take a step forward until we have challenged our thinking enough to be able to see a different way. To have cracked open a space in our ego bubble. That's literally what we're doing. Cracking open a space in that closed environment that justifies itself, that thinks it is all of these things and acts out in ways that hurts people. To crack that open, that space, like an egg, and see that there's something else out there is always going to be the first step. And it's the same with our emotions. The first step is to consider and to finally admit the actual goal here, that our emotions must be regulated by detaching from them in a way that lets us know that there is a deeper I here. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're ever going to be able to love like Jesus, which means loving the enemy, which is an emotional no-no, right? To be able to do that means we have to crack open our consciousness in such a way. But the problem with emotions beyond thought is is that they're emotions. They're not under our control. By definition, they live in the unconscious and they come and go as they will. We don't have any control over them. And as hard as changing our thinking is to be able to see something beyond, we can't just regulate our emotions with our thought, with our willpower. It's only going to be repeated action in a certain direction that's going to take us there. But then if we've had great trauma, if we've had really difficult times in our lives, that becomes paralyzing to us and something maybe we can't break through. I was just talking to a friend of mine uh, a couple days ago 
And he's been working with veterans down in the San Diego area. And you know, our veterans today are just really having a hard time of it. You know, the stress, the anxiety, the PTSD that they feel, uh, all of that is, is just rampant right now because of the trauma that they've gone through. Many of them are suffering from treatment-resistant depression. No matter what the docs do, it's not making any difference. I just read some stats. <sighs> Veterans are killing themselves at three to four times the rate, two to three times the rate of the general population. And since 9-11, 2001, when the towers fell until today, there have been four times more veterans killed by killing themselves than that were killed in action in that same period. Can you imagine that? Four times more veterans have died by their own hand than were killed in action because of what we're talking about here. They're not able to break through. The trauma is so great. And so there is a growing use of psychedelic drugs psilocybin especially, in microdoses and in uses that are helping them to be able to break through. Because what does the drug do? The drug cracks open the egoic consciousness for that moment and allows them to see that there is another there there, that what they assumed was just their reality and always was going to be. Suddenly there's an opening and they can see something else. Now, what they do with that experience is going to be all important. Did you know there is a church in Louisville, Kentucky called P Sanctuary? And P stands for psilocybin. This is a magic mushroom church. And I don't know if you know about this, you know, but this church, as part of their regular practice, is to ingest mushrooms. And they call it the sacred mushroom. Communion is passing out the heads of these mushrooms and everyone takes a dose. And that's part of their ritual practice. Now, it sounds crazy, and I can see from your reactions, you know, what in the world is this all about? But understand, humans have been using psychedelic drugs of all types since we were drawing on cave walls, okay? It's always been a part of spiritual experience because of this, this attribute of cracking open the ego and being able to have a spiritual experience. And so they are following in that footsteps. Now, of course, these are Schedule One drugs. They're illegal, but as long as you're a church, there's a loophole and so on and so forth. Now, to take it to that extent is, is really interesting, to understand your communion as being part of this process. The drugs are cracking open that egoic bubble that allows us to step outside of normal consciousness and to see something new. But here's the point that I want to make about this, that even without the drugs, some people have intense conversion experiences. Maybe you're one of them. Where at the beginning of your walk, you had this huge emotional experience and you felt that ego crack open. You may not have thought of it that way, but suddenly you have this transcendent experience and an epiphany where you're seeing something that you never saw before. Or maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's a near-death experience. We've got a few people in our community who've had near-death experiences. And that also cracks open the ego. And they've had the same kind of experience. The mystics that we have studied here have visionary experiences and experiences that are like psychedelic because they are opening themselves up to a new consciousness. But when the mystic, when it happens to the mystic, it's usually after years of preparation, years of contemplative practice that gives the vision, gives the experience context. It, it gives it a grounding 
that a one-off experience or an experience right at the beginning of your faith walk is not going to be able to give you, which gives it that important context to the experience. And so many of the people that I've talked to that had these transcendent experiences and were relying on them to get them through the next 40 years, you check back in a year or two later and they're back into old patterns, whether it's addiction or whether it's whatever it was that they felt that they had been freed from because they didn't back it up with the daily practice of contemplation. The whole point is to have that experience, to realize that there is something beyond what we can see, taste, and measure with our instruments. But if we don't make it a part of our daily living, if we don't understand that it's not just the spectacular experience in which God is available, but that he's available in every moment of our lives, and especially in every moment of our lives, then we're not going to be able to sustain this. We're not going to be able to find the love. We're not going to be able to find the humility, the vulnerability, that following Jesus really requires. Remember that. Sometimes these experiences do the opposite. They create an arrogance. They create a pride in the person that takes them into an opposite place. These drugs, I do believe, and I'm changing my mind on this because I had an initial very negative reaction, but over the years that I've been working with alcoholics and addicts, I've seen that there is a place for, for these kinds of meds. For those who have been so traumatized, for those who cannot break through on their own, to help them. But for even them, they need to back that up with daily practice. And for most of us, our spiritual formation, grounded in contemplative practice and Jesus' way, is what's going to get us to the same place. Let's take a look at Roar again and see what he has to say about how we can go about this. Often when people say we can't help how we feel, they are talking about their emotions. We can help how we experience our emotions. They're created by our unconscious and conscious thinking and conditioning. By observing, observing our thoughts and emotions, we can witness how they build on each other through our attachment to repetitive inner stories. Such witnessing begins the process of healthy non-attachment, and that's what com contemplation does. This ongoing and daily practice of mindfulness, of staying present, is building our awareness. We're becoming more aware, and then we can actually monitor our emotions and our thoughts, find out what's pulling us off from the moment, which is the first step to changing the underlying causes of these emotions. If we're patient, our feelings will change of their own accord, some quicker than others. Our emotions will begin to deplete. They won't dominate us or dictate our behavior. Eventually, toxic emotions will disappear and non-toxic thinking will start to arise in our hearts. And one day, there will be just thoughts without a thinker. There will be sounds without a hearer, tastes without a taster, smells without a smeller, sights without a seer, touch without a toucher. What I mean by all of this is that things will arise and we will not identify with them as me, mine, or I. There will be no judgments, interpretations, or stories about what we have just perceived. We will see the bigger picture and not be caught by the clash of the senses, not react to whatever we have made contact with. We will feel the unpleasantness, pleasantness, 
neutralness, or even the mixture of all three feelings, and will turn toward it without an agitated mind. The heart and mind will accept all of it without protesting. When we protest, toxic emotions begin to emerge. That was a writer named Valerie Mason Johnson, but Rohr puts it this way. He says, the next time you are offended, there we go, back to offense, right? Consider it a teachable moment. Ask yourself what part of you is actually upset. It's normally the false or smaller self. If we can move back to the big picture of who we are in God, our true self, we'll find that what upset us usually doesn't mount, amount to a hill of beans in objective reality. But we can waste a whole day or longer feeling that hurt until it seems to have a life of its own and, in fact, possesses us. There's no clear conscious decision to think or act in this way. It just happens, and we are seemingly powerless to stop it. By doing healing work and practicing meditation, we learn to stop identifying with the pain and instead calmly relate to it in a compassionate way. For example, in centering prayer, we observe the hurt as it arises in our stream of consciousness, but we don't jump on the boat and give it energy. Instead, we name it. Resentment toward my spouse. Well, that never happens. Then we let go of it and let the boat float down the river. We have the power to say, that's not me. I don't need that today. I have no need to feed this resentment. I know who I am without it. This is the beginning of emotional sobriety. Many of us think we are converted to Christ, but without the conversion of our emotional reactions, we remain much like everybody else. See, that's it. If we don't do this work that we're talking about, if we don't realize and admit that we need to do this work we're talking about, we remain unchanged. There is no effect to God's love in our lives, even though we have it. Everybody does. We call this place the effect because we want there to be an effect to God's love in our lives, which means we have to go through the work to change our thinking, to detach from the emotional environment and make our choices based on what's happening in the moment. It's a slow process. It doesn't have to be ridiculously slow, but it's not going to be as fast as you want. It's a slow process. It's unspectacular process. It's an unspectacular way that builds our daily awareness, builds our humility, our vulnerability, our sense of connection. And the big events... Those, those drug-induced events, even if they may be needful, may not create the same kind of just ground-level understanding. Jesus is always talking about being unseen. Go back and read the red letters in your New Testament in the Gospels. He's always talking about being unseen. He's talking about no one knowing what you're doing, going into a secret place. Your father knows but no one else needs to know except God because that's where we find a pure heart, an undistracted heart. That's where we can really know what our motives are all about. And what does this look like in Jesus? I think John 10 has one of the greatest stories. How are we doing on time? We're doing okay. Are you doing okay? All right. This is John 10, even though it says John 11. It's not really John 11. That's, that's me at 11 o'clock last night. 
John 10, verse 1. Did that mess you up, Brandon? I just <laughs> A man named Lazarus who lives in Bethany became sick. Bethany was a town where Mary and her sister Martha lived. This Mary was the one who poured the perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. The sisters sent Jesus a message, Lord, your dear friend is sick. All right, what's going on here? Jesus had <laughs> gone through his usual process of speaking truth to power to the folks in Jerusalem, and they were so angry that they were trying to stone him, and he barely slipped out with his life, crossed back over the Jordan River. So he's Transjordan, and he's in the, in the Jericho area over here, and he's teaching and doing his thing there because it's just too hot in Jerusalem. And then he gets word that his dear friend Lazarus is sick. Now, he's notified, but he's going to stay a few more days. Think about the triggering of emotion. If your best friend, one of your best friends, a ways away, you get this message how sick they are, that they're sick unto the point of death. You know, what is that going to stir in you? Anxiety, stress, grief, right? And then he decides to stay. Is there some guilt mixed in there too? You know, what's, what's going on in this mix of emotions that Jesus is feeling? <coughs> At verse 5, we'll skip ahead a little bit. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he received the news that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to the disciples, let's go back to Judea. Teacher, the disciples answered, just a short time ago, the people there wanted to stone you, and you're planning to go back? Okay, so he stays two days. I don't know if he felt guilty, but he felt something. Yes, I know the text here is sanitizing out the emotion until the very end, but you know if he's a human being, he's feeling something here. If he really loved his friends, and he did, he's feeling something here. And now he's going back. What does that trigger? Is there fear? More anxiety, more stress, that he's going to have to start dodging rocks as soon as he gets across the state line? I mean, what, what's going on in his mind? And yet he goes anyway. He stayed for whatever reason he stayed. Was it because the people still needed him there? He wasn't finished with them? Now, the text says that he knew what he was going to do with Lazarus, but let's not use that kind of comment to dismiss the emotions that Jesus was feeling and his ability to regulate them in the moment and do what needed to be done regardless of what he was feeling. So he overcomes whatever fear he's got and he says, we need to go back. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had been buried four days before. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem and many Judeans had come to see Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, Lord, my brother would not have died. There's some good Jewish guilt right there. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask him for. There's some manipulation, right? Jesus says, your brother will rise to life. I know, she replied, that he will rise on, to life on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me will live even though they die. Different kind of life and death he's talking about here, right? And those who live and believe in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she answered. 
I do believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So here's Martha. You remember Martha and Mary? Martha and Mary fame? Martha's the one who's busy running around, preparing the meal, doing all the stuff. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, being lazy. And Martha is really upset about that. A little bit of unregulated emotion is there as she goes complaining to Jesus about her sister and what she's not doing to help her. This is the two personalities we have. We've got the dreamer, we've got the contemplative, and we've got the active one. Same as the two sons of the prodigal, right? The elder son and the younger son. Jesus loves to compare and contrast these personalities because it's not either or, it's both and. We need both Mary and Martha. But look what Jesus does. What is he thinking as she hits him with all this? Is he annoyed? (laughs) Is he a little bit perturbed? You know, at the way that she's obviously kind of goading him here a bit. But what does he do? He engages her in a thoughtful discussion because that's who Mary, that's who Martha is. Her comfort, what she needed was to talk through it with Jesus. That's the way she processes Whatever Jesus was feeling, he patiently has this conversation with her and helps her to deal with her emotions at the moment. But then in verse 28, after Martha said this, she went back and called her sister Mary privately. The teacher is here, she told her, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and hurried out to meet him. Jesus had not yet arrived in the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The people who were in the house with Mary comforting her followed her when they saw her get up and hurry out. They thought that she was going to the grave to weep there. Mary arrived where Jesus was, and as soon as she saw him, she fell at his feet. Lord, she said, if you had, not, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and he saw how the people with her were weeping also, and his heart was touched, and he was deeply moved. Where have you buried him? He asked them, come and see, Lord, they answered. And Jesus wept. What did Mary need? She didn't need a theology discussion. Mary is Mary, and he knew who she was, and he just went into that space with her, wept with her, and comforted her. This is a beautiful, beautiful display of being able to move through emotionally charged situations one after another, fully present, fully connected, and fully able to deliver what was needed at the moment, regardless of what was being felt internally. To recognize emotions, to feel them, and then be able to say, yes, but this is what love requires. This is what needs to happen. Now, as a contrast, and pointing toward why all of this is so absolutely critical right now, let's take a look at our own emotionally charged situations, right? Now, here on purpose at the effect, we don't talk politics. We figure all that is up to you to decide how you feel politically and about situations. But at the same time, we can't completely stick our head in the sand and not talk about the elephants that are in the room when they are, and we've done that too. But never from a point of view that we are going to be picking sides or we're going to be showing the virtues of policy or this or that. It's all about our personal response to the situations that we're faced with and the emotionally charged situations into which we're thrust at the macro level and also at the micro level. Now, obviously... 
the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade is like the hugest bombshell that has been dropped on us in, in a long time, right? And we're not going to discuss that in particular. That's, that's up to each one of us to decide how we feel about such issues. But what I want to take a look at just now briefly is how it's being handled, how it's being received, and the reaction to it on both sides of the argument. It's an emotionally charged situation, and the reactions are emotional as well. Obviously, there's anger that, that moves into a kind of fury. There's resentment. There's fear. There's gloating, I suppose, on one side, right? And a sense of self-righteousness. I heard that one group told their followers through social media to bring rifles to the protests. That's where we go when we are completely covered over with emotion. That's where we go when our emotion is unregulated. That's what happens in line at Lowe's when one thing goes wrong and you completely just blow the place up with your reaction. That's what happens in our marriages, in our lives, in our relationships. And literally, we don't know what we're doing because we are justified internally. Inside the closed universe of our own egoic bubble, everything makes perfect sense, and the emotion reigns supreme, and we can't tell the difference between where we end and the emotion begins. It's identical with, and we just act it out. But as a country and as a people, how could it be different if we could see through the emotions to what is really needed at this moment. Right now, there is no dialogue possible between the combatants. Death threats are being issued. The emotion is overwhelming our ability to simply care for each other and ultimately care for the women who are carrying these children that are at issue here. How are we going to care for them? The emotion is clouding everything. And in a society that sees emotion as authenticity, sees emotion as virtue, sees emotion over everything else, we become lost in it. And we are lost in it. Our political dialogue is lost in it. Our culture can't talk to each other anymore because we're lost in it. And love becomes absolutely derailed. Before we're going to be able to build a better macro, connection as a nation, as a society, we have to start within, with ourselves. And our goals must be clear for ourselves. We need to clarify that within ourselves. If you don't believe that emotions should be regulated in some way, need to be detached from, well then continue on. I'm not here to tell you what to think or what to do, but take a look and see if the way that you relate to your emotions are causing the problems that we're talking about, and if any changes need to be made. But the goals must be clear. And if you think maybe there is something that you need to do in order to follow Jesus more nearly and clearly, then walk down that path as well. But if we're going to be followers of Jesus, if we're ever going to find out who we are in Christ, if we're going to take on the mind of Christ, as we were talking about last week, if we're going to live in Jesus' name, if we're going to pray in Jesus' name, in his Shem in Hebrew, which means his essence, his character, his reputation, if we're going to pray as Jesus prayed, 
if we're going to ask as Jesus would ask in his essence. It means finding a self, a deeper self, an identity that absolutely transcends our thought and our emotion. Because that's a person who can love as God loves, who can love the enemy, who can see past the emotional trauma to be able to make a choice that will leave everyone better than found in that particular moment. That's where Jesus is taking us. Let's pray. Father, we do pray for our nation and our society, and we pray for the people that are being affected by decisions that just seem to be coming so fast and furious lately that we don't have time to breathe or react from the last one. So we pray for our country. We pray that cooler heads will prevail, that solutions will be found through the difficulties we face, that we will reignite and rediscover our love for each other, our sense of care and connection to each other so that we can start to talk again and face the issues that we're facing and not just each other. And as we pray for our nation, we also pray for ourselves because we know that it begins with us. So Father, for each of us, help us to see more clearly what we believe the goal of our spiritual formation is, where we want to walk, and how we can best follow you. And then give us the courage to do that, to take those steps in those directions. And again, we thank you, Lord. We give you all of our gratitude for everything that you give us to empower us every day to do just that. Thank you for being with us, Lord, your love and your constancy. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, let's all stand.